right, thanks everybody for being here. Um, I'm just going to do a little bit of um, nuts and bolts right here. Uh, we're on the MIT campus to do what we do most Thursdays, which is to welcome a guest speaker with our Computer Studies graduate students, you guys, and our friends and colleagues. Um, if you don't already know, you can find all of our events at cmsw.mit.edu slash events. Um, and you can also hear recordings of all our talks going back to 2006 there. Uh, just a couple of notes about upcoming events. We've got a uh, communications forum next week, Being Muslim in America in 2016. It's at 6 p.m., not the usual 5 p.m. start time, so keep that in mind. Um, the week after that, you'll hear from a CMS alum, Nick Sieber, um, on how algorithmic music recommenders are helping people make sense of new kinds of jobs. Uh, our own prof, Fox Harrell, speaks on the 28th. And then the final talk on May 5th is on virtual reality and documentaries. Um, an important note, horrifyingly, somehow, next Friday are the thesis presentations for our second year students already. Uh, it is, though, my favorite day of the year. Um, it's open to the public and will be live streamed, I believe. And that's going to be in building E51095. Uh, so let's move on to Lisa Gulmeda's perks. Um, since last fall, Lisa has been Associate Professor of Communication Arts and Scientists at Merrimack College. That's in North Andover, Massachusetts. Uh, before that, she was at Nazareth College, including a stint as Director of its Communication and Media Program. She earned her PhD at UT Austin, her Master's at Penn State. Um, and I first knew her actually as a classmate and dorm mate at Wake Forest University. Um, where her communication honors thesis was called A Feminist Textual Analysis of Ellie McBeal in Philly, which was a much better thesis than mine. Um, but then, as, I, as it turns out, I realized today that her Wake advisor, Jeffrey Bain, is the brother of our old friend, Nancy Bain, um, which I was excited to find out. Um, if you've been around here at thesis time, you know I give high fives to anyone who can title their thesis without a colon. Uh, but I have to mention the brilliance of Lisa's titling. She's figured out how to use pre-colon, the evil albino, idiots versus empire, and here's a full title, electile dysfunction, <laughs> the burlesque vines of the Sarah Palin MILF frame. Um, now her first book is Media Marathoning, uh, with her topic tonight being Media Marathoning and Effective Involvement. Um, and I'll let her take it from here. Um, I didn't know that Nancy Bain was related to Jeffrey Bain. I follow her on Twitter, so good, good tip for me, too. Um, thank you all for having me here today. Um, I was thinking about you all and wondering if you were submitting to the NCA conference, which the deadline was last night at 3 a.m. for us. And it turns out I think just Andrew was submitting. So I thought I might have a tired audience. And it, it seems like I still do have a tired audience because of your thesis presentations next week. I heard some collective sighs and some heads and hands. Um, so I wanted to make sure I kind of um, bring up the entertainment quality. So I added a couple extra videos in a song. So maybe we could have a sing-along later, depending on your mood. Um, so I'm going to talk about media marathoning. I'll specifically look at the affective involvement chapter. But as I was prepping this, I kept thinking, oh, I need more background. I need more background. So I've got a few of the um, different pieces that lead into this chapter that I'll tell you just to lay the groundwork for the study. So as uh, many of you are graduate students, I just want to tell you this idea started in graduate school. And the semester was always stressful. And my friends and I would get together as soon as the seminar papers were turned in, as soon as our students' grades were turned in, and they started complaining quickly. We would shut that off, and we would watch all of the 
extended edition Lord of the Rings films. So in one day, um, we would start with crepes in the morning, and we would usually be drunk by the evening. Um, but we had a great time, and it was something to look forward to after that big push to the end of the semester. So I was wondering if other people were doing film marathons. Um, I also started doing book marathons and a little bit of TV marathoning, or what the popular press calls binge watching. So all three of those media are captured um, in the book, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that. Okay, so the agenda, I'm gonna give you a bit of an overview first. I'll talk about why media marathoning is a popular media engagement pattern now. I thought that might be of interest to this program in comparative media studies and writing. And then I'll get into the affective involvement chapter and touch upon a few key themes there. Tell you a little bit about some, what I'm calling spin-off studies that the book inspired, but they didn't have a place in the book. And then I look forward to your questions and comments. So there's our agenda. So media marathoning, I want to give you my operational definition of it. And this is, um, for me, uh, watching a season of a TV show in a week or less, watching three or more films from the same series in a week or less, or reading three or more books from the same series in a month or less. And just to give you some contrast, there was a Netflix commission study on binge watching. Um, and I'll later criticize that, um, that title. But they said that binge watching is two to six episodes from a TV show in the same day. And a more recent study by Deloitte, it was their digital democracy survey, they said that it is watching three or more episodes from the same series in one sitting. I assume you can get up to go to the bathroom and get snacks, but they said one sitting, three or more episodes. And they actually found that based on that definition, 31% of people um, had binge watched in the previous year prior to the study. So we're seeing it as a, a pretty normative behavior, a normal one. Um, one of the reasons I'm not so keen on those definitions is because it doesn't capture um, immersion in a story world. So if I sit down and watch uh, two episodes of uh, Mad Men, and then I decide I don't like the show, Technically, according to Netflix, I've binge-watched. If I watch a third episode, according to Deloitte, then I've binge-watched. But I was interested in a more holistic engagement with the story world. That's why I said you have to watch a season in a week or less. So I'll tell you a little bit about my study. And so it's a two-part book for media marathoning. The first part looks at the behaviors of these marathoners, people who met the criteria established in the operational definition. And I had 176 study participants. Um, some are in this room. So I have friends from camp, right, going way back. There's Anne, so I'll wave to Anne. And she participated in the study. Um, and I don't know if any of her ideas are here because it was anonymous, um, but we'll see. We'll see if anything rings a bell. But I had people participate in open-ended online surveys. That was one of the, the biggest ways to gather um, a lot of discourse. I engaged in one-on-one -on -one interviews with people that I initially thought of as super marathoners. They had marathoned a lot of different um, texts through a lot of different media. And instead of calling them super marathoners, they're kind of more regular marathoners because I found a lot of people were doing that. Um, in addition to those two ways of gathering the qualitative discourse, I had journal keepers, so people who kept journals while marathoning. And finally, I had book focus groups. So trying to get kind of a book club feel for people who had marathoned the same books. And so those were the ways that I, I recruited study participants and gathered the discourse. The average age of my participants was 31. And the sample was really heavily um, skewed toward white females. So it's definitely not representative 
of the general population. So I had 134 women and 41 men participate. You can see the racial and ethnic breakdown of the group. Um, a lot of people identified as Caucasian. So again, that's a limitation here, but it's qualitative, so I'm not trying to be generalizable. So the first part of the book um, analyzes, I'll just go back to that, it analyzes the behavioral patterns that these marathoners exhibited. It also looks at the affective involvement, so how are they emotionally tied to the story, and that's what I'll focus on in the, the latter part of the talk. And it looks at cognitive engagement with the story worlds, too. So how were you kind of exercising your mind? And I'll give you some trivia questions um, to talk about that a little bit more later on. And so that's the first part of the book, and that captures the immersion part of the title. The second part is my analysis of these commonly marathon stories. So the studies that I did ran from 2010 to 2012, and I compiled a list of the common book titles or book series that people were marathoning, film series and TV series as well. So do you have any guesses about what might be really popular from 2010 to 2012? Some of them are throwbacks, some of them are older, but what do you think people might have been marathoning at that time? The books are usually easiest to pick out. What book series do you think were really exciting? Harry Potter. Harry Potter, yes. Harry Potter's on the list. Something outranks Harry Potter. Any Twilight. Twilight was on the list too. I had really animated Twilight focus groups. One with a Twilight tattoo, which we didn't see, so that was okay. Hunger Games. A third of my participants marathon the Hunger Games books. And what's interesting about that is I didn't even ask all of them about their book marathons. Some I was just talking to about films. So that was a pretty sizable number um, in the study. Any guesses for the films? Harry Potter was on that list too. What else? I'm like the teacher who's fishing right now. <laughs> Lord of the Rings, of course, my favorite was on there. Right? So that was a couple. I had Back to the Future. I wouldn't recommend it because for this book, I had to watch and take notes on all of these commonly marathon stories, and it wasn't worth it past the first one. Right? So Toy Story also made the list because the third one came out around that time, and people were marathoning um, to kind of remind themselves of the story. And in terms of the TV series, it's kind of all over the map. So any guesses about that one? There was a, a bigger list for the TV series, 2010 to 2012. Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad, boom. Yep. <laughs> Correct. So like Glee era? Glee was actually on the list. Yeah, a lot of people were marathoning Glee. Very good. Dexter topped the list. Okay, so Dexter, a lot of these are cult classics. Um, Firefly was on the list. Um, but How I Met Your Mother, so I saw a couple of sitcoms on there as well. So it wasn't entirely what you'd expect, but it was these big ones like Dexter, Breaking Bad. Um, Downton Abbey also made the list too. So what I did is I looked at, um, well, I'll tell you in a minute. I looked at some of these common character types and the themes that I saw um, in these marathon films and books and TV series. And just to give you a smattering of some of them, um, I found a lot of these have an unlikely hero, someone who's ordinary, someone who doesn't want to really um, take on power for power's sake, um, someone who's very humble. There's often a technocrat villain who uses and abuses technology. There's a puppeteer figure who pulls the hero's strings and is manipulative, usually for the greater good, but still kind of sneaky um, and not so moral. In terms of the themes, a few of them included ambiguous morality, and there's been actually a lot of popular press scholarship on that, and some um, new scholarship that I heard at NCA last year 
on ambiguous morality, specifically in binge watch stories. Uh, additionally, there's emphasis on love and friendships. It's commonly what gives the heroes their power. And we see a lot of unlikely alliances. I used to call it, when this book was being drafted, uh, interspecies alliances, because you got like, oh, we won because of the Ewoks. Thank you, Ewoks, right? You came to our rescue. But a lot of times we saw just people who weren't expected to be allies um, assumed that role. And so just so I know you all a little bit better in your tastes, has anybody, according to that operational definition, has anybody marathoned something in the last year or two that you'd be willing to share? OK? Anybody want to name some titles? Tentative hands coming up. Great. Cool. Yeah. Doctor Who. Yeah. Had some Whovians taking the studies, too. Yeah. I didn't look at games. That's a glaring blind spot. Yeah, but is that something that you've done? OK. Uh, no question. No question about that. Anybody else? Any other marathoners? Oh, yeah. Better call Saul. Good. Fuller House. For shame. For shame. Thank you for admitting that. That's great. And I do, um, oh, I'm sorry. Was there another one? Before the babies can understand language, right? <laughs> if it helps you get through and it helps you cope, that's another theme that I'll, I'll pull from later. So yeah, hold that thought. Um, I almost marathoned Master of None last fall. I think it took me eight days instead of seven to get through it. But the Netflix all-in-one drops are exciting. So it's easy to do those. Um, and so I want to tell you my cumulative thesis of the book is that the practice of marathoning encourages readers to place themselves in the stories and negotiate the nuances of morality. So the thing that holds these common character types and plot features together, I argue throughout the book, is really that they're helping us kind of flex our moral muscles and, and learn about decision making vicariously through the characters. And I told you I would criticize binge watching, so here's my, here's my complaint. Um, I tried to pick media marathoning because, A, it incorporates multiple media, but I thought the word marathoning really undercuts some of these negative connotations associated with binging. Um, so you may have read in the popular press or even some scholarly studies like, binge watching is connected to obesity and a sedentary lifestyle. Um, it's linked to depression. Don't do it. Um, and I found a lot of positive outcomes. So um, not all are positive, but I have some good things to lift up the spirits of people who are media marathoners in the audience. All right, so first, let's look at why media marathoning is happening now. And I look at it at the intersection of technology, agentic uh, readers, I will say, so readers and viewers I lump together um, under the title readers, and then finally, and narrative complexity. So the digital content delivery technologies, they're really important. A lot of my participants mentioned um, how easy it was to access the content and to keep going with the content. So we have our image here of the Netflix screen and how you have to opt out of the marathon or the binge or whatever we want to call it. And it really entices you. It's almost like Walter White in this example is daring you to exit his screen. And so I don't know if I'm just unusual in this, but if it starts to play, I feel that urge to commit to it. So I try to scramble for the remote or the phone or stop casting if I'm done with an episode because I don't want to start a new one. And one of my participants, um, all of whom have pseudonyms, this was from Felix. And he said, quote, you'll get up and start walking away from the screen, and the next episode just starts up again. 
And then you'll watch it for about a minute, and you just want to keep watching it. So that was one of the examples of feeling kind of pulled in to the marathon because of this interface with Netflix. Okay, so this next piece is about agentic viewers and readers. So I saw a lot of people time shifting because they had to, unless they marathon something that had all-in-one season drops, they were watching after the live airtime. They were stockpiling in some cases um, and catching up. So they were watching on their own schedule. And that has become almost an imperative that you have to really start at the beginning and do that catch-up work. So Newman and Levine talk about this, that we're expected to watch every episode of a series from the beginning. It's about having this really intense experience um, and being, I guess, full of the knowledge of the storyline. Whereas um, I recall from you know, 15 years ago or so, you would just skip an episode and ask someone what happened. And that's not OK anymore. It seems like it's um, less of a practice. In terms of looking at viewer agency and reader agency, I also cite some examples. Um, the Hobbit fan edits came out after I wrote the book. But I talk a little bit about the Phantom edit. Um, so have, have any of you seen the Phantom edit? So it's of the Phantom Menace for Star Wars. OK, we got one there. So basically, the person who re-edited the Phantom Menace, which a lot of fans criticized, the original one, um, he made the fan cut, essentially, because it's a stronger film by relieving the viewer of as much story redundancy, Anakin action and dialogue, and Jar Jar Binks as possible. So he takes out what a lot of people didn't like, made his own enjoyable edit. Um, so the Hobbit fan edits are doing similar things. And I also cite the example of character Twitter accounts, where you can actually expand storylines, and you can engage with people who are acting um, as TV show characters, as another way of this, um, seeing this creative play and agency. So the final um, answer I offer to why is media marathoning happening now, I draw a lot from Jason Mattel's complex storytelling. So he's got the Velvet Light Trap article and his new book on this. And this complexity invites a lot of reader work and reader interaction. So some of the examples, Lostopedia is one. I didn't want to link to it because it's kind of a, a messy site, but it's a really interesting, cool site. Um, and then I think I heard some people talking about Game of Thrones, too. So Web of Thrones, trying to keep track of all the different characters and the families. A lot of fans do this work, and so they can help people sort through what's going on and provide these interactive sites for play. Um, I had one marathoning participant who kept a journal. Uh, he had a notebook of the different characters in A Song of Ice and Fire. So as he was reading, he would jot down notes on them. And this is a college student um, who was really just actively using, I would say, research skills on this fictive text. So it was an interesting example there. All right, so I'm going to roll into the affective chapter. Not so much rolling. OK, there we go. So just to give you a little bit of a preview um, of this content, I'll talk a little bit about the literature I consulted. I'll give you my thesis. And then I'll spend most of the time talking about some of the themes from the discourse. All right, so I tend to go literature light in presentations because many of you have probably read this. Some of you might have written some of this. I have cited some of the MIT professors um, in the book itself. But of course, I have to look at parasocial interactions and relationships. That's one of the key areas um, for talking about this connection, we feel, um, not just to the characters, but also the story world. 
narrative engagement and narrative transportation also dig into this idea of immersiveness. So Oatley, who talks about narrative engagement, he considers emotions this primary site of narrative engagement. And Bucell and Balancic, they have, a lot of these are quantitative studies, but I borrow from them. Um, and they had an emotional engagement subscale. And this is, again, Bucell and Balancic. And they say, um, the story affected me emotionally. During the program, when a main character succeeded, I felt happy. And a third one is, I felt sorry for some of the characters in the program. And I saw a lot of these ideas reflected really clearly in the qualitative discourse. So I see the emotions as almost like this connective tissue holding the reader together with the story world and with the characters. So my chapter thesis is that the marathoners are taking an intense journey, although it's compressed, and it's with pseudo-avatars. So I consider the characters to be the reader's pseudo-avatars, and they develop strong emotional bonds along the way. And Horton and Wool kind of gesture toward this in the parasocial interaction article that, um, that started it all, and they say, quote, Parasocial interaction is created not by the mere perception of it, but by the role enactment that completes it. So we're really giving of ourselves to the characters to forge those connections. So this pseudo-avatar is a core concept here. And I'm not trying to say that the readers make narrative decisions. I'm arguing that they're making the decisions matter throughout the journey, and that they're animating the characters and giving them life. I had um, a friend who read the Harry Potter series, and she stopped at book six. I don't think it's a spoiler to say. You can yell at me later. Um, but Dumbledore dies, and he was her favorite character, and she put down the series after that. She didn't want to go. Are some of you okay? You need time to cope? Okay. I didn't bring tissues, but we'll be all right. Okay, we're all set. She put it down, though. She just didn't want to um, continue in that narrative journey anymore. And another example, I think, where we can see the, the pseudo-avatar concept illustrated is a lot of my participants remarathoned. So they took a familiar text and they um, immersed themselves in it in a condensed way. And they would still feel sadness at the events that they knew were going to happen. So when a character dies, um, the real tears and the real emotions that you experience, I argue that it's because of the relationships you formed with the other characters. So you're mourning with them rather than being surprised at the twist and turn of events, it's that connection, that pseudo-avatar you find in the other characters um, that really makes those plot twists meaningful. Okay, so the first of the sub-themes that I talk about in this chapter is about strong emotional responses. And this is, I will say, kind of a Captain Obvious idea. Yeah, people felt really strong emotions. So some of the common um, words that they used to describe their experiences were sad, angry, scared, and proud as they went through the marathon journey and the marathon process. So this is a little self-serving, but I want to show you because we commonly think about the sad parts. We don't think about the ones where we're like elated and really excited. I'm going to show you my friend's favorite part from The Lord of the Rings. See if you get the chills like I do. So good.
chest. That is no opal. on the unlikely alliance, right? So the unexpected help. So this is the part where my friends and I would cheer. That was a, a key piece of the, the routine or the ritual. Right, so again, sadness and anger, that stuff happens, but we want to keep other emotions in mind too. So I said that this is kind of a Captain Obvious um, theme within the discourse. But I think there's a lot of interesting nuance to develop in the contrast of the real and the fictive worlds and how those kind of clashed during people's marathon experiences. So Samantha is one example, and she marathoned the Hunger Games. And she recounts, oh, let me scroll down here. She said, I was on a train home from New York City, and I was on a public train bawling my eyes out. Everyone was looking at me. I was like, I can't stop. I'm just so sad. So when a key character died in the Hunger Games, Samantha knew she was in a public place. She's crying in a public place, acknowledging that everyone was looking at me. And still, that real world can't fully encroach on the fictive world. The sadness was just something that she couldn't disconnect from, or maybe she didn't want to disconnect from. But we see, again, the acknowledgment of the real world, but the fictive wins out in this case. And Torin is another example. He picked his own pseudonym, so no judgment there. Um, he watched Sons of Anarchy, and he wrote in his journal, I really felt bad that this character was dead, and I had to tell myself she wasn't real and that no one actually died. I just connected a lot to the fact that now, at least in the story, two kids are going to grow up without a mother. So we see him trying to bring in the real world to push out these um, negative emotions, these sad feelings, and he really wasn't able to. So he had to tell himself that she wasn't real, and then he has this little acknowledgement that there's someone who's dead, at least in the story. But we see that battle happening between experiencing that real emotion from the story and kind of wanting to get back into the real world. So Game of Thrones, the Red Wedding. Have you heard of it? Do you know this? Yeah? All right, so some of my students accused me of showing them a spoiler, but I'm not going to show you a spoiler. I'm just going to tell you that stuff goes down in the Red Wedding. So. <laughs> Let's see some people's responses. I love this clip. I could watch it again and again. We also get to learn about gum, so enjoy. Okay. 
the ice with breath freshening cooling crystals. Response to this last show, as I said, and you have spent years and years writing, writing uh, these these stories and these characters, and not knowing what the reaction would be. There's a clip that's on the internet right now of fans reacting, YouTube video of fans reacting to what you call the Red Wedding, which right. was the most stunning thing many of us have seen in television, maybe ever, certainly in a long, long time. Uh, so let's take a look now. You get to watch. Real fans reacting to the scene on Sunday. Let's take a look. laugh there. You know, like he knows what's coming. Okay, turn the lights back on. All right, so we've looked at some of the different emotions that can um, course through these experiences. And I have one participant, Roberta, who really um, showed us a lot of different emotion when she recounted the Harry Potter marathon um, that she did. And so she remarathoned Harry Potter. She had already um, read the books. But she had a miscarriage, and she felt the need to talk about this. Um, I didn't ask her directly about it, but of course I appreciated her sharing. Um, and so when she was home for the week recovering um, from this miscarriage, she read Harry Potter to start feeling better. And she wrote, I still experience an almost maternal pride every time Harry stands up to Voldemort. I still cheer every time Molly Weasley blasts Bellatrix Lestrange. And I still cry every time Dumbledore dies. And in her recounting of this experience, She's almost um, talking about flexing her emotional muscles in the story. Um, so she's still sad because of what happened, but she talked about it as really being almost homeopathic. Like, I can feel these emotions in the story, and when I come back to my, my real world that I'm never fully disconnected from, but I just feel stronger and more ready to cope with that, more prepared to cope. And she inspired another study that I'll talk about at the end, too. So the second theme that I'm going to talk about is parasocial mourning. So this is the second of four major themes here. And this meme really captures what a lot of the marathoning participants talked about. So watching all seven seasons, maybe not in two days, but feeling really sad when it's over. That was a common um, response that I got from people. So I look a little bit at the parasocial breakup study from Isle and Cohen. And I think it's really interesting that they have an unsupported hypothesis that the longer a viewer reports watching Friends, so they look at the very end, the finale of Friends, the more distress he or she will report following the end of the show. And that wasn't supported. And a lot of my marathoners, too, felt like they could be really strongly connected with the characters, even if they didn't get to know them over the span of a few years. Um, and Jim Pagels in Slate, let me just put his um, little title there, Stop Binge Watching TV. So he really did not like binge watching. I don't know if he's changed his mind. I haven't talked to him. Um, but he said one of his main points for why you should stop binge watching was that TV characters should be a regular part of our lives, not someone we hang out with 24-7 for a few days and then never see again. So he's kind of casting binge watching as this fling with characters. 
And a lot of the people I talked to still felt like these were meaningful relationships that they developed. And Ellen was one person who had a hard time after her show ended. And so she talked to her partner and said, I miss my friends at Sacred Heart. So in this example, again, we see the real and the fictive worlds coming into contact. She's leaning on a real person, her partner, to talk about the loss of these characters. Right? And we often think of media as escapism, that something bad happens in real life and you turn to the media characters. But it happened in reverse here. And do you know what show she's referencing, A Sacred Heart? Scrubs, got it. Right, my go-to over there. Okay, here we go. We'll see how this works. Morning treats. Sorry, I can't. I can't do it. This is Bye Bye Little Sebastian. Does anybody know this fancy ditty? Okay, good. My toddler cries, and it's not because she's sad about Little Sebastian. She really hates the song. So, I was practicing with her last night. But Parks and Rec is a newer show that ended somewhat recently. And we saw a really big um, response, right, and Twitter, um, people talking about the finale, how important it was to them, how emotional it was. So it's just a, a more contemporary example of how these series um, mornings happen and how we publicly express our grief. Bye-bye, little Sebastian. All right, so the third theme I'll discuss is nostalgia. And I have an example here of Carol and another one of Maggie. And they illustrate two of the sub-themes within this category. So Carol talked about pleasant memories from her youth, and she was connecting that to Friday Night Lights. And she said, quote, the show reflects my memories growing up in a small Texas town where football and high school life is what the town circulates around. And Carol was 28 when she took this study, or took the survey. And so she wasn't um, advanced in age, we could say, but it was still exciting for her to reconnect to that high school experience. Um, I mentioned that I had a bunch of Toy Story film marathoners, and they too felt that connection to childhood, um, and the memories were positive. Maggie illustrates a different um, sub-theme, and this was about using the text to reflect on personal growth. And so she said about Harry Potter, the first book is not as well written as the last. Rowling's writing almost improves as the books go on, and it kind of goes along with our age. The first one is more of an adolescent book, where the last one is more of an early adult book. So it was helpful and enjoyable for her to kind of trace her personal growth um, as she went back through the series. So I identify here that we have a secondary mediated relationship. So you're forging connections with the characters, but what's also happening here is that's a vehicle to strengthen the relationship with the memory of your former selves. And whether or not that memory is accurate doesn't really matter. It's about um, having that positive connection to how far you've come or where you used to be. All right, I'm going to end the um, discussion of the affective chapter on the dark side. So have any of you had negative experiences marathoning? Maybe you didn't really like it when you reflected back on it. Anybody want to talk about that? No, see, because marathoning's great. Oh, Anne does. Anne, tell us about your story. I had terrible nightmares after watching Dexter. Oh, and okay. Finish it. Yeah, so you had to cut it off there? I had to cut it off. It's terrible. How far did you get in Dexter? How many seasons? Kind of far. Okay. <laughs> okay. And then I didn't want to stop because I wanted to watch it, but then I couldn't sleep. And I kept having these nightmares. And it was this terrible place to be in. Yeah, I, I can hear that. That's rough. So I had to watch some of Dexter to get to know it because it was the top marathon TV show. 
but I also didn't like it. I got through, I think, a season and a half. So, yeah. Um, I had to rack my brain for a negative one, but I guess the, um, the feeling of being kind of emotionally dislocated when you're done with something and you go back to being uh, like not in that particular story world that you so aggressively inhabited for a while. Yeah. Um, it can take a little while to like adjust back to being in your own regular emotional landscape that is not that media universe. I think that's a really great point. It almost reminds me of the emotional version of going to a movie in the daytime and leaving and it's dark and you're kind of like, you know, what's happening here? But you had a really good description of what's going on. So those are great. Um, thank you for sharing, Anne, and I have to ask too, did you figure out what happened? Did you look online for some plot summaries just to have that closure with the series? Okay, all right, still, it's disconnected. You didn't want to know, done. So one of the dark sides here is a lot of people, not a lot, some people reported feeling guilt and Nathan was really troubled. So he was one of the examples um, where he said this is an addiction and he said, but at least it's not alcohol or drugs. So he kind of boosted himself up that way. But one time he watched uh, three Midsummer murder, uh, Murders episodes in a row and he said after the experience, I am a horrible human being. I could have worked at a homeless shelter. So we have a sense of concern about the trade-offs that happen when we're devoting our time to media marathoning. Um, ben, who marathoned the X-Files, right? We had another X-Files marathoner here. Um, he said that he would also feel guilty for spending so much time watching rather than working on other more important things like his dissertation. So if that rings a bell, just saying. Um, but he still reflected positively on it. He just wasn't sure about the trade-off. And I'm not going to click on the Portlandia link, but they really go through the loss you can suffer if you're giving your time to the marathon and not maintaining these other important things in your life. I had some marathoners, I think somewhat similar to Anne, who expressed regret that once they were through the series, they didn't really like it. They just had continued because they felt like they needed closure. And two people cited Lost as a letdown. Like, I was in it for so long, I had to see it through, but it wasn't a pleasant experience overall. And Charles, who marathoned Battlestar Galactica, and I had a bunch of those too, a bunch of people marathon that. Um, he was really concise. He said, first season, fantastic. Second and third and half of the fourth, awful. So if he were to go back and I guess do his fan edit, it might be like season one and then skip to the second half of the last season and he would have found that more enjoyable. So overall, not too many people talking about the dark side, but it was there and I think it's worth mentioning. I just want to tell you a little bit about some of the related research I'm doing. So it didn't have a place in the marathon study, um, but because a lot of the marathoners were time shifting, I've done some television spoiler studies since then to look at what happens in the space between the episode air date and when you actually watch it as a time shifter. And so I found some um, complicated definitions and attitudes towards spoilers not all negative towards spoilers like we might expect, especially based on those negative connotations with spoiler. And I've been working with um, a former student of mine, Noelle McElrath Hart, on this project. Um, from the greater discourse that we pulled from the time shifter study, we found an unusual finding that we're breaking off into another study. And that was we found the spoiler. So when people talked about knowing narrative content before watching a show, Many of them also mentioned, almost half of them mentioned, that spoiler being the reason they watched the show. So instead of turning them away from the show, it kind of guided them to a more interesting and exciting narrative experience. They knew what they were getting into a little bit more. 
And this is based on what Roberto was talking about, too. Um, I had many other marathoners say, I did this because I was recovering from surgery. I marathoned because I was sick. Um, I marathoned because I was on a new medication that made me feel drowsy. So I had a bunch of people volunteer that information. So this summer, I'm going to be interviewing people to get more um, information about marathoning and health coping and what themes we might see there. I did have a lot of new parents talk about it, too. When you're um, in an area, well, everyone lives in a place full of germs. If it's wintertime and you have a newborn, it's hard to figure out where to take them to get out of your house. Sometimes they don't sleep well. Um, usually they don't sleep well. So if marathoning can help you kind of get through those um, rough patches, I, I could see it as a potentially positive um, experience. But we'll see what the discourse reveals. That's all. Thank you. So as we open up to questions, I'll just remind everybody that we record this. So uh, enunciate, speak loudly as you ask your questions. Um, I'm going to do something a little weird and say, Kyrie, can you say how this would apply to video games? Uh, the way to get this started. Yeah, actually, I was I was thinking about asking about that. I didn't mean <laughs> to quite bring it up in the middle of the talk, but um, yeah, I mean, I I am really interested in how things like her social interaction then work when it comes to like actual avatars, um, and I uh, could, you know, what. Uh, marathoning might look like in virtual worlds and video games and that sort of thing. Um, as as to what it might look like, I, uh, I don't know. Potentially similarly, but I, I I'd be interested to to hear what you might think. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I had um, some students last spring look at video game marathoning. Um, I can't remember how they operationalized it because that was something tricky for me. Is do you set of an hour you know time frame on it how do you figure out what's really marathoning and it is somewhat subjective um, but I think compared to the book versus film versus TV marathons I think the video games are going to be an outlier in terms of the experience the um, cost and rewards kind of what you are motivated to do during that experience so I think that's a really cool area for future research not to do the cop-out like future research but I think it could be something that that's definitely worth exploring yeah. When you were um, talking to uh, participants in, in your original study, did you get, a, get any sense of whether um, people who sought out, for example, marathoning experiences in particular, um, how they perceived that behavior of seeking? In the sense, like, did they character? Were people, I'm, okay, let me, I shouldn't have thought about this before I asked you. Are people who are drawn to marathoners, do they define themselves, to marathoning, do they define themselves in particular ways according to what you Oh, that's a neat question. Um, I don't know if this is a full answer to what you're asking. I think that's a great question. Um, a lot of them didn't really identify as marathoners. They were happy for me to give them a name, like, oh, that's what I've been doing. Um, because they were experiencing some judgment from sometimes friends or family, who felt like, you're doing this, and I, you know, I don't really understand it because I'm not part of it. Um, so that was something uh, that I noticed. But a lot of people were also doing it in groups, and they didn't feel as bad about marathoning, but they were still happy to have a name for it. So that's not a, a full answer. Do you want to follow up with? Well, well, 
The reason I partly asked that is because when I, as you were talking about this, I was thinking about myself as someone who actively seeks out like the opportunity to marathon media, and yeah. I look specifically now for like media that is marathonable. Yeah, um, sure. And I'm wondering to what extent people whom you spoke to, and, and if I were to think about it, I think, okay, why, why, do, why am I the sort of person that's attracted to consuming media in this way? And I would think back to like the books I used to love to read and the ways I used to read them, mm -hmm. the kinds of stories that you know, a lot of which, which maps onto what you presented. Um, so that's why I was wondering if that's something you explored also with other people who maybe were very deliberate seekers of that type of Yeah, and I, I guess I would have to go to the people I interviewed one-on-one -on -one, because I got to know them a little bit better. But a lot of them were critical types. Like they really were, not critical in a bad way, but they liked to have media experiences that they considered to be high quality. And they would um, really criticize the text and kind of get into them and not just be passively entertained. So they were more active in terms of both, I think, their media selection and their media engagement processes. So that's, that's the little nugget I guess I have to offer there. Yeah. I was wondering if maybe this is a future research thing too, but how marathoning relates to people watching media that was not aired in their home country. Like, um, yeah. I'm thinking about anime in particular, uh, especially the history of marathoning, anime fans have been at it a lot longer than a lot of people because they just get their stuff fan translated in big chunks and big like, I released this season, this subgroup released a season of this anime and it's on torrent and that's been going on for a long time. Yeah. But I also like, not even that, even UK TV shows, people don't watch them serially, they just get them. Yeah, whenever, that's a great question and it's good for me to learn about anime too and the, the release models there. Um, whenever there's a delay based on geography, people now can get what they want at that time. And so I had a couple of people who admitted to illegally um, streaming or downloading Sherlock and other BBC series. And so I think it's kind of a, an example, again, of, of reader or viewer agency that I can have it. Why are you keeping it from me? I'm just going to get it on my own. So I think that's, that's a good question about geography there. Um, thank you so much for the talk. Uh, I really liked what you were saying about Paris social mourning, um, when shows end. And I've been doing a lot of reading about mourning lately for some other research project. And um, so Jacques Derrida writes about mourning as this work that is ongoing and never quite is finished. And that's kind of nice when you're talking about shows because there's this ritualistic practice of coming back to them and being able to watch reruns and access them again. But then I wonder, um, along your research, have you found that this morning has led to revivals and how that works? Because there's been a bunch of reboots, like X-Files came back, Fuller House, and Girl Meets World instead of Boy Meets World, yeah. and Twin Peaks may or may not be coming back. And so like, does this act of mourning or the work of mourning produce like potentially more demand um, and more content or more of a cultural practice around like reviving certain works? That's a really cool question. Um, and I will have to defer to other people who have examined that more in depth that we have this sense of, I think, fan victories or viewer victories when we start to write the letters or you know, send our Subway sandwiches and we're going to get community back on the air in whatever form. Maybe it's not on the air, but we're going to stream it. And so I think we cling to those victories um, and that's an important way of, of um, asserting our agency. But I think we have more individualized responses to the morning. Like some people will channel it into collective action, and other people will remarathon. They'll look for the next thing to fill fill that hole. 
They'll go online and talk to um, people in fan communities. So there are a lot of different ways that I think the morning gets, I don't want to say it dissipates, but because you said it's ongoing, and I get that. Um, but they, they cope with that experience or that feeling. Yes. I know in, in our household, I'm much more the, uh, the television TV marathoner than Marker isn't. So I'm wondering if you have any insights on how marathoning is negotiated in families and couples and domestic spaces and yeah, rambling over is this going to be a thing that I have to slow down? <laughs> I think that's a great question. And a lot of people, um, I've seen a couple of popular press articles and, and commentary on this, that if you're marathoning together and making that commitment, it's a huge violation if somebody moves ahead without you, if they're taking a lot of time to do this without you. So I think it's almost like any other hobby. If you're a golfer and I'm not, like, see you for five hours, you're gone you know, on the weekends. Um, and so I see it being negotiated like many other hobbies. but. Um, from my experience, my husband and I will watch TV shows. Usually we get in one episode after the kid bedtime at night. Um, but I will watch things in my office on lunch break to just try not to eat and do work at the same time. But I'll pick things that A, he doesn't like, or B, he's already seen. So Freaks and Geeks, he's already watched it. That's my OK to go ahead and watch it on my own. So it's complicated, I think. And there can be some resentment, but it's, it's similar to anything that takes your time. Great question. You talked about um, fan creativity in one of your sort of some bullet points. And as you were talking and you were mentioning some of the shows, I went and looked at a fan fiction website and just oh, saw that a lot of the shows you were mentioning are also really popularly represented. And I was wondering if you had looked at or intended to look at um, kind of effective involvement and the creation of like fan fiction, or especially because it's often driven by characters people seem very attached to. I think that's a great question. I haven't looked into that, but I think it's worth exploring for sure. Um, I mentioned with the, the in-character tweets that people like trying to expand the story world there. But it's so different when you're making your own narrative extension that's more fully fleshed out. And so I, I think that's another good area for future research. Great. None of the people I talked to, um, I interviewed, had admitted to or, or talked about engaging in fan fiction um, or creating that. Some people did read it, but not a lot of creation happening. Yeah. Um. Did, did you end up see much around uh, nonfiction media that might be marathons, like maybe things like sports or uh, documentaries or like nature documentaries? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I get the sense, this is beyond the, the study time period, but I get the sense in the last maybe six months or so that a lot of people were marathoning. Is it making of a murderer? Yeah, so I think if I had done the study now, I, a lot of people were, were looking at that. Um, I can't think of anything that really made it onto the list of commonly marathon, but I'm probably missing things that are out there now. Yeah, related to that, I, yeah, I was thinking about the same thing. I think Making of a Murder, The Jinx, and yes. Serial, the podcast. Yes, yeah. And they all came out in the past one year or so, I think. That might be an interesting case study. Yeah, I was pushing a student group last spring to look at Serial and um, look at the, the marathoning of that. That got me on the treadmill last winter because I was bored otherwise, but Serial kept me exercising. Um, so I think there's, again, another great future study there. And they, I have watched Making the Common Murder, but the other two had like real life connection happening yes. at the same time. So yeah. that might be another. I think so, too, because if there's um, opportunities for fan activity, if they're finding new clues, 
or offering new insights, it's, it's more participatory. I think they can um, engage in new and different ways. Yeah, great point. So, Kiri actually mentioned one thing that I was, which was sports. Yeah. If I think about like the fall, in the fall, you could, if you're just talking about college and pro football, you've got three hours on Thursdays, 12 on Saturday, 12 on Sunday, another three on Monday. Um, and sports are just as constructed as pretty much any fiction piece. Interesting. Um, I'm wondering, like, where, did, where does sports fit in, particularly when talk about obsession um, yeah. in, in, a, in a way that's been more addressed than we usually have with television. I mean, does it do sports basically, does that fit your model as well? It doesn't, and I didn't specifically ask people about sports, um, nor did they volunteer that information. It's probably because of the way I operationalized um, media marathoning. They didn't think of that. Um, I know I sound like a broken record. Future research would be great on that subject. Um, it's not going to have necessarily the same character types and themes, of course, that I identified, but I think you have some of that. You have your heroes, you have your villains, um, and I think you have similar motivations and practices, but I don't know enough to, to comment more fully on that one. Anybody else want to chime in on that? Yeah. Well, I mean, would, uh, part of what disbars it be the fact that sports are usually watched live? Like where? Yeah, and then my, my mother-in-law is zapping through the Yankee games all summer long, so she kind of binges on those, and I'm doing her remote control action. Um, so I think that's another interesting piece. Once you cut down the commercials, she'll squeeze in a double header you know, in an hour. And so that's, yeah. I also kind of wonder about the gendered aspect of that, that um, if like, you had a lot of women in your study, yeah. maybe media marathoning, this kind of binge-watching practice is more associated with um, you know, uh, other kind of associations of femininity maybe around like house, I don't know, um, and then sports being kind of more delegated to the realm of, of masculine kind of interests and practices in that. Perhaps binge actually has, we could do a <laughs> linguistic analysis yeah. of binge yeah. as yeah. a gender, particularly gender toward the Well, I mean, it's, <laughs> and even, I mean, if you're talking about, say, football, it's not even considered marathoning or binging, it's no, just exactly. kind of what guys yeah. do. Yeah. Which is right. like, that's just right. what it means to be a guy. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's just March Madness. Yeah, 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 yeah. Can you talk anything about, um, like, in specifically for TV series, for instance, like shows that provokes binge watching and others that don't? Because I, I feel like when I when I don't intend to do media marathoning at all, like sometimes you can't just stop yourself yeah. from clicking next mm -hmm. and. Uh, some of the shows, for instance, uh, I recently watched Twin Peaks as well. Mm -hmm. That also being like an early example of a TV series, it's it doesn't it has really high quality storytelling, yeah, and but it doesn't provoke you to watch the next one. Mm -hmm. Also, I was thinking about the same thing about um, I only watched one episode of Vinyl. I don't know if anyone has seen it, but that's amazing, like production quality and. Actually, Martin Scorsese directed the first episode. I don't know about the rest, but that doesn't like when you finish it. It feels like you finished the film, and yeah. you can just move on with your life. You don't need to watch the next one mm -hmm. until you really crave it. Yeah, I think those are interesting points. Um, and a lot of the marathoners did say, "I'm looking for something that's high art. I'm looking for quality television." Um, they were looking for something that would captivate them. 
And a lot of the shows that had cliffhangers, that really drew them along. Like Breaking Bad does a really good job, I think. Um, I don't want to say stringing the viewer along, but you want to keep watching. And same thing for Lost or other um, slow to unravel kinds of shows. For the comedies, I think people are just enjoying them in part. And they're so short and quick that if you hit next for How I Met Your Mother, it's just maybe like 22, 23 more minutes. And so I think there's an ease of marathoning the comedies, but the dramas are what really suck you in and kind of propel you forward in the narrative. Yeah. I think I'm also interested in, and I don't know if this is something that, that you explored in depth, but the, the sort of the historical, like the ways that binge watching has shift over, shifted over time. Yeah. Because I feel as if um, the advent, this is like going to be a somewhat long question involving Doctor Who, but I feel like the, <laughs> the advent of Netflix has made this into like a culturally accepted yeah. Um, and it's also brought it into the home, looking to what Kiri was saying about gender. But when I think about a show like Doctor Who, what's interesting is that like it has this long history, you know, it has like the original episodes, it has the radio recordings made by fans for the missing episodes. And so then you have people who would get together at the marathon um, as sort of a social activity. And that was very explicitly, I would imagine, outside the home. And it's interesting when you look at a show like Doctor Who because the fans for that show have shifted in terms of their gender makeup very dramatically. Um, and that's something that the creators have also talked about. Um, one of the, the guy who runs the show right now is this gentleman named Stephen Moffat. And he was a fan for many years. And he said that when he used to go to like Doctor Who conventions back in the day, it was all men. And now there are so many women. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if, I don't know, I mean, it's like maybe a tenuous connection, but I wonder if this idea of gender and, and some of these services bringing binge watching into the home space has changed that um, in interesting ways. I would be curious to see. Yeah, and I, I shouldn't say, when I talked about why is media marathoning happening now, I think it was happening before, as you've mentioned. Um, even if you're watching different soaps, if you have that block of soaps that you're watching every day, that's still very immersive. That's still a lot of narrative involvement. Um, and for, for things like Doctor Who or other shows in which people would be sharing videotapes um, or meeting up to watch these episodes, I know I, I went on eBay and got the whole season of The Bachelorette, which is really, really excellent. Um, for my master's, my master's thesis, I needed it, but I had it at my fingertips. So there's my confession there. But I think we've wanted to do this for a long time, but finally the, the technology has enabled it. So it's, it's really taken off that way because of the ease of use. Yeah, and you've had a hand. I'm sorry. Uh, I was um, wondering if you had any sort of surprising insights in your research on um, maybe like ritualistic behavior around binge watching, um, maybe you know, sort of affect it, you know, like is, do people do different things when they binge watch versus just sort of your normal or marathon, you know, do a marathon session, you know, what typical you know, media consumption matters? Yeah, so I did find some really interesting rituals for people who, um, had marathoned together and then caught up to the weekly viewings for some shows. So in terms of TV, there was a group of people who watched The Walking Dead, and they would get together. Um, sometimes they would re-watch the shows leading up to the new episode, and they would drink Bloody Marys, because that was related to the theme of the zombies. Um, so I had some rituals there, but usually it was in smaller groups. So um, families would get together, um, parents and kids, you know, relational partners, and so there wasn't always a defined ritual that was unique or involving like special drinks and food and things like that. But it was usually um, part of their regular rhythms. So we would watch, um, some people would say, we watched all of the Harry Potter movies leading up to the premiere once a night you know, for, for seven days. 
And so things like that would catch them at different periods in time, usually related to new releases. Maybe just one more tech. I really appreciated the technology question. I appreciated you giving us a glimpse of kind of a, how tech and interface is a part of this. Um, I wonder if you have any thoughts on if it's also, I'm just thinking about my own marathoning practices. They exist in part because of the kinds of devices I can use to carve out what the media space is in the home. So if you think of the shift from like, television in the living room and then I grew up with a television in my bedroom as well but now I have you know I have my iPad so I can go in another space and have this private media sphere yeah. so it's just a question if you have any thoughts on or if you have data on do the kind of devices that we now also consume media on like could we have mar marathoning if we didn't have iPads that's or, a great question or yeah I think we would still have marathoning as long as the streaming and the downloading was there. But the devices, I think, enable us to marathon more often because we don't have to share the space of the living room. Um, we can just easily be you know, portable. We can marathon on trains, on planes. Um, we can take the, the iPad into our room um, if our partner doesn't want to watch what we want to watch or if we're sick and we need to be isolated. Um, so I, I think it does promote that, that ease of marathoning and, and makes it maybe more um, prominent than it wouldn't be otherwise. Yeah, yeah I just want to mention to you that, yeah, well, you talked about folks also, actually. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But I remember, like, organizing marathoning for myself with books when I was, like, much younger. And I had a term for it. I never discussed this with anybody. You know, my friends and I all, all would read really aggressively. But I would read these, like, really, like, long fantasy series where, like, they're very, like, they're meant to be read one after the other. There's this story arc that goes. And so I would actually buy all of them to make sure I wouldn't be caught without one oh. when I finished the other. Uh -huh. And I would carry, if I was nearing the other, I would carry both. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and I realize how this is sounding now. Um, <laughs> because, and literally, I would think of it almost like, you know how people who are chain smokers, like, like a chain reader, that you start one book off the end of the other. And so I guess what I'm saying is that that was a way, obviously, to do this exact same, yeah. exact same behavior, um, but without an iPad or, or that technology. Yeah. Some of the um, marathon readers talked about even if the next book in the series wasn't available, they felt really good about pre-ordering because they knew as soon as it was available, they would get the notification and have it at their fingertips. So that connection to the narrative was still there. So I'm curious, and I know you've been looking at the audience side and the demand side of, of content, but what does this do to production? Like, does it make producers of content feel like they need to get stuff out faster, or like what kind of pressure exists there? Like, I noticed, I think it was for Orange is the New Black, the media coverage around the release was like one article I read, there was a journalist who had stayed up like two day, two nights just to like cover it. And that's an insane amount of pressure just to be able to like write descriptively about this thing that is meant to be marathon. Like I was wondering if you came across anything like that. That's a great question. And I do think um, the all-in-one season drops are really confusing um, TV critics and commentators because um, I think it's Linda Holmes of NPR talked about it's either like news or it's done. You know, it, it's kind of like you have this really short window with shows like Orange is the New Black when it's current, it's contemporary, and then after like maybe five or seven days, you have no idea where anyone is in the narrative. There's no um, pattern. And we haven't, I guess, collectively agreed on, let's all watch, you know, an episode a night together and talk about it on Twitter. Um, so I think that's interesting. And I, I see 
fits and starts with the, the network executives about whether they, they believe Netflix and other um, places that have production companies that are also releasing their own um, shows have the right idea. I see a lot of criticisms of Netflix and while they're not reporting um, their viewer statistics, they don't feel the need to and, and people are trying to guess what it is. And so I think no one really knows for sure what to do with this, um, but the all-in-one episode drops, um, we're seeing more of them. And so I, I think there's, there's a tide that may not necessarily be stemmed there. Anything else? All right, let's give a big thank you.